Turn with me in your Bibles to our text as it's found in Daniel chapter 4, verses 19 through 27. This continues, as you may recall, uh, the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had and where we are now. This Lord's Day, the king has related the dream to Daniel, and Daniel is now in the process and will be in the process of interpreting uh, that dream. Daniel 4, verses 19 through 27. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation, it is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be lengthening of thy tranquility. When we began our consideration of Daniel chapter 4 a few weeks ago, you may recall that I, I promised that in a future sermon we would consider some historical writings of ancient 
historians as it relates to the divinely induced insanity of King Nebuchadnezzar. And today I, I plan to bring that testimony to you in the hope that your faith in the veracity and the credibility of the scriptures might be strengthened and might be uh, further confirmed. Now let me make clear that historical writings do not establish the credibility of scripture. Uh, it is not historical writings that provide the basis for the authority and uh, for the truthfulness of scripture. That is the work of the Holy Spirit alone by way of the inspiration of Scripture. That is the work of God uh, because God is credible, because God cannot err, therefore his word cannot err. And so we do not look to historical writings in order to establish the credibility of Scripture, but, to, but as a confirmation God doesn't need confirmation, but he even provides confirmation in history and in archaeology uh, for the strengthening of our faith. We read in 1 Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. The prophecy that is in scripture, the prophecy in scripture came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So all the words that we find in scripture uh, were words that were moved upon the prophets and apostles in scripture to write. That's what God teaches in his word. Thus, before considering our text today in Daniel chapter 4, uh, I would like to take a few minutes at the outset to present some testimony uh, from the writings of ancient historic historians as it relates to Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. S skeptics, critics, both in the past and at the present, attack the credibility of the book of Daniel as a whole. And uh, Daniel chapter 4 is no exception uh, to that. Daniel chapter 4 details, as we've already noted and seen thus far in our series, it details the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, it details the interpretation of that dream by Daniel, and it finally details the full realization of that dream in the uh, insanity that God brought upon Nebuchadnezzar in behaving like an ox in the field. There are three main attacks that uh, have been aimed by critics, skeptics, at Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, the credibility of of uh, what the scripture teaches concerning Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. The first attack is this. Uh, there is no historical record outside of the Bible that allows for seven years 
in which Nebuchadnezzar was absent from the throne. The literal term uh, in Daniel Aramaic is seven times, and I think in the last sermon I tried to, to uh, establish that most likely that does, however, refer to seven years. You can go back and listen to that sermon again if you uh, are a little foggy on that point. One Old Testament scholar by the name of Paul Ferguson has noted, quote, meticulous historical records are available up to about the 11th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, after which the chronicles are practically silent. Nebuchadnezzar didn't reign for 11 or 12 years, he reigned for 43 years, and yet the latter part, most of his reign, uh, is engulfed in, in silence. Very little, in fact, is known about the close of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Thus, it would seem that to draw from such a silence in Nebuchadnezzar's reign that there was no seven-year absence of Nebuchadnezzar from the throne is unwarranted. For mere silence does not prove it did not happen. And so that's in response to the first attack, that there's no source outside of the, the Bible that speaks of this seven-year hiatus absence from the throne. Um, again, that is not proof in itself, the fact that there is uh, mere silence about that period of time. Secondly, a second uh, attack is this, a seven-year absence of Nebuchadnezzar from the throne due to insanity would surely have led to his assassination and usurpation by his son uh, or by another prince uh, in the kingdom of Babylon who wanted to assume the throne. Well, interestingly, as uh, one digs into uh, how in ancient history those who had insanity were treated, how they were viewed, insanity actually protected one, and especially a king, from being murdered because uh, such an insane person was believed, superstitiously to, uh, believed to be possessed by a god uh, or possessed by a higher being. His ravings, the ravings of one who was insane, uh, the strange behavior of one who was insane was treated as some form of communication uh, with the gods. Uh, there is indeed a, a Babylonian tradition, as we'll see in just a moment, there is a Babylonian tradition coming from ancient times that represents Nebuchadnezzar as having been possessed at the end of his reign, as having been possessed by a god which led to very strange behavior. Let me ask you, you remember in uh, 1 Samuel 21 uh, how David feigned, pretended that he was insane 
And did Achish, the Philistine king, uh, slay David? Or did he allow David to live? Did Achish perhaps preserve David for the same reason? Um, Achish, being a Philistine king, was a pagan king. He was not a true worshiper of God, so he likely had the same understanding as came from Babylon and drifted down to other cultures uh, uh, within uh, the, the lands, uh, the Semitic lands of that time. Very likely that uh, David was preserved for a similar reason. And a third attack, which we'll use this one to uh, specifically reference uh, historical writings from the past, uh, is this, this third attack. No historical record outside the Bible reports Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, as would be expected if he actually suffered such a fate. Well, to the contrary, public records in ancient history uh, do not usually portray a king's weaknesses, faults, defeats, and downfalls, but rather records of that time, coming from that time, were uh, almost always a glowing report of his conquests and of his achievements, which uh, makes the Bible very, very unique because the Bible does not hide at all or cover over the sins and the faults of even the greatest leaders that God used in Scripture. It exposes their faults. It exposes their faults because we are all filled with sin and faults. It shows the mercy of God to those who flee to Jesus Christ. But in the records of ancient world, um, the Bible is very unique in that regard because those records usually, almost always, never refer the faults uh, of, uh, or, or indicate the faults and weaknesses of kings. Thus, it would, in fact, not be surprising to find no ancient detailed report of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. The fact that there is little or no historical evidence that exists again, does not mean that the event never took place. Consider how the following ancient reports could very well give a version, though a distorted version, nevertheless a tradition that was passed on from ancient times in which we even have record of now concerning this very event in ancient history. An ancient Babylonian tablet uh, was discovered and was published in 1975 by A.K. Grayson in which Nebuchadnezzar is the subject of a fragment in this particular Babylonian. Uh, this is not 
100, 200, 300 years later. This is a Babylonian tablet that was discovered uh, in uh, the Babylonian script. In this tablet, Nebuchadnezzar has become disoriented. His decrees are contradictory one to another. And he does not even respond to his own name. His, he shows no concern uh, for his family, for his son, his daughter. He does not even uh, care for the worship centers to his god, Marduk. In the tablet, it indicates he has no, he has no uh, value. He sees no value at all to his life. That's a summary of what's found in that Babylonian, ancient Babylonian tablet. Though this ancient tablet does not declare specifically that Nebuchadnezzar was made insane by the Most High God, which, again, I think we would probably be very surprised if an ancient Babylonian chronicler would indicate that. Nevertheless, we see here the bizarre behavior of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, that could be detailing that bizarre uh, behavior in a euphemistic, uh, a polite way of explaining his insanity by a Babylonian chronicler. Moreover, the ancient church historian Eusebius, uh, who, who wrote his history of the church up into that time, uh, lived between 260 and 339 AD. He had access to a history of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians and Assyrians, that was written by Abidinus an ancient Greek historian who lived around 200 B.C., in which Abidinus relates an account concerning Nebuchadnezzar, that after he had achieved all his conquests, which measures up to what we find here in Daniel chapter 4, this occurred at the, toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, after all of his conquests, that he, Nebuchadnezzar, went up into his palace, which we also find and we'll see in Daniel chapter 4. He goes up to his palace. And in that account of Abedinus, uh, he indicates that Nebuchadnezzar was possessed by some god, which was, as we said, the ancient view of insanity. He was possessed by some god and uttered some event of calamity that was to befall Babylon. In other words, there existed a historical tradition about some extraordinary event that occurred toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Barosus is another writer of ancient times, who was a Babylonian priest of Marduk, who was the chief god of Babylon. And he wrote a history of Babylon, 
which uh, was composed somewhere between 290 and 278 BC, in which he describes Nebuchadnezzar falling uh, particularly ill at the end of his reign. The Greek text in which Barossus wrote gives the idea that the king was suddenly invaded by some sickness, suddenly came upon him, according to E.J. Young in his introduction to the Old Testament. Dr. Young, Old Testament scholar, goes on to explain, quote, now sickness before death is so common that there would be no point in mentioning it were it not of an unusual kind that it came so suddenly upon him at the end of his life. Again, this is not a direct confirmation uh, in the precise language that we find in Holy Scripture of the insanity that God brought upon Nebuchadnezzar. But again, it relates a tradition, a tradition that something very unusual occurred toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And it was included in these various historical accounts that I've just briefly enumerated. Why would those be included if they were not of some significance? Why would they be passed on as they were if they didn't have some extraordinary importance uh, in the life and toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign? History, I would submit to you, is hardly silent about some extraordinary, even supernatural calamity that befell Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his reign. Even skeptics and critics of the biblical account are willing to acknowledge such a historical tradition did exist. And so, having fulfilled the promise I made to you a few weeks ago, giving some of that historical testimony, Let's proceed in the remaining few minutes we have to look at the text that is before us in Daniel chapter 4, verses 19 through 27, and the main points are these. Number one, Daniel is greatly troubled in Daniel 4.19. Number two, Daniel's divine interpretation of the dream in Daniel 4, verses 20 through 26. And number three, Daniel's plea for the king's repentance in Daniel 4.27. So our first main point, Daniel is greatly troubled in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. When God gave to Daniel the interpretation of 
King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It so stunned Daniel uh, that he was completely silent uh, for some time. It says for one hour, which is really an idiom for just a period of time. It doesn't mean literally necessarily one hour that uh, uh, Daniel was silent. But there was a conspicuous, noticeable silence on the part of Daniel uh, during this time. To such an extent that uh, the king actually uh, interrupts Daniel's silence and encourages Daniel to declare to him the interpretation of the dream, uh, even if it greatly disturbs Daniel. The latter part of the verse, verse 19, where Daniel says, uh, My Lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. Uh, This has the idea that the king's enemies would rejoice to hear the dream and its interpretation because its fulfillment would bring severe judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. Regardless, dear ones, of the bad news that the dream had for the king, God's revelation, God's truth, must be faithfully received and must be faithfully declared by Daniel. And the same is true, dear ones, the same is true of our reading, of our receiving of God's revelation found in his word. We must receive it as faithful. We must receive it as true even when it's hard, even when it's difficult to receive. We must not change God's word to suit the fancies and the sensibilities of our modern culture. Because that's what happens so often in so many churches. Because so many people are practicing that which is immoral, doing that which is contrary to God's law, hating and despising God, or if even professing God, uh, doing that which is contrary to his written commandments. That the message from the pulpit uh, is watered down, it is toned down to conform to the sensibilities of those who are in the church so as to bring the people back and back and back again and again. But Daniel did not tone down the message. He gave to the most powerful king that lived at that time the truth as to what God had revealed to him. And dear ones, so must we do. We must not allow our perverse culture uh, to so uh, influence us that we are unwilling to be truthful, to speak the truth in love. Not to speak the truth in bitterness and resentment, but in love because we care for people because we love and desire their repentance, to speak the truth in love. A message of judgment, dear ones, is not easy, but it is necessary. If we would be faithful, like the prophets of old. In fact, it was the false prophets, as you read through the book of Jeremiah, 
It was the false prophets that toned down the message of the, of the true prophet Jeremiah, where Jeremiah was speaking of judgment and judgment that was going to come upon God's people. But the false prophets were saying, peace, peace. God says there is no peace. There is no peace. It's judgment. And just as we cannot distort, dear ones, God's mercy. And interestingly, it's not God's mercy that often ministers will distort. But it's God's justice that is distorted. But when God's justice is sugar-coated, listen closely. When God's justice is sugar-coated, it cancels God's mercy. It cancels God's grace. For God is only merciful because, and he is only gracious because, his righteous judgment rests upon us. We cannot speak of God's mercy. We cannot speak of God's grace if we do not speak of God's justice, his holiness, and his righteousness. It is only in that context that mercy and grace make sense at all. And that we love and appreciate his mercy and his grace. The second main point, Daniel's divine interpretation of the dream in verses 20 through 26. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule." So Daniel proceeds to retell the details of the dream in verses 20 through 21 in nearly the same words uh, that Nebuchadnezzar uh, gave to Daniel the dream back in verses 10 through 12. And so this part of the dream describes the great glory 
the worldwide power of King Nebuchadnezzar. And then, in verse 22, Daniel comes to whom, to who the uh, tree represents. Verse 22, it is thou, O king, that are grown and become strong. The tree is King Nebuchadnezzar. But then, Daniel, in verses 24 through 26, comes to the most difficult part of the interpreting of that dream. That is the judgment. The judgment that God would bring upon King Nebuchadnezzar through his angelic watchers. For Nebuchadnezzar's pride in robbing God of his glory and in oppressing his people, stepping upon his people, crushing his people in order to achieve his own glory because he was one of the greatest builders in history. Much like the Egyptians in the pyramids, can one imagine uh, the, uh, how many people uh, died, how many were oppressed for uh, a king's glory? in such structures and in such buildings and in such uh, architecture simply to glorify uh, a ruler. God doesn't simply dislike our pride. He hates it. He hates our pride. It is an abomination to him, Proverbs 6.16, where the first of seven abominations is a proud look. All of the abominations that follow, the other six, begin with pride in leading to these other abominations. Though the decree to cut Nebuchadnezzar down to size was issued by the angelic watchers in verses 13 through 14 earlier in the chapter. They were but the servants of the Most High God uh, who were simply carrying out the will of God because in verse 24 we see Daniel saying that this is the decree not of the watchers, not merely of the watchers, but it was the decree of the Most High God. They were simply fulfilling his will on God's behalf. When we get to verses 25 through 26 of Daniel 4, uh, we see the plural pronoun, they. Verse 25, they shall drive thee from men and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, seven times shall pass over thee, till thou knowest that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, verse 26, and whereas they commanded to leave the stump of, their, of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that, thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. So the question is, who are the they in these verses? Well, I submit to you that they are the angelic watchers that God employs. They are the watchers who bring to pass God's will as it relates to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, 
we've already noted this in a previous sermon, but note again how involved are God's angelic watchers in this world. Uh, they're not just observers. They're in heaven and just watching. Uh, uh, they're in heaven with nothing employed to do. They are the servants of God. They carry out in uh, earth and in history and in throughout the universe. They carry out the will of God. And so we see here, they are carrying out judgment against Nebuchadnezzar, but they're also carrying out preservation on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar by way of uh, his coming again uh, to be restored to the throne. We see in Daniel 6, uh, the, as we'll get to, the, to this chapter in the future, it's uh, an angel that God sent to preserve Daniel there in the lion's den. Daniel clearly states that this uh, judgment will befall the king due to his robbing God of his glory. Due to his robbing God of his glory, who is a God who raises up leaders and rulers and puts down rulers. In verses 25 through 26, notice uh, at the end of each of these verses, Till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Uh, that implies again uh, that this judgment befell Nebuchadnezzar because he didn't recognize that. Because he was proud. Because he was conceited. Because he was arrogant and took glory to himself. Likewise, in verse, at the end of verse 26, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. That is, the God of heaven uh, does rule. How we could uh, wish that God would display the same truth to our rulers, to the rulers of this nation, uh, who do nothing, it seems, but boast about their so-called accomplishments, which are not accomplishments at all, which are not truly successes, but are taking this nation down farther and farther down a path of destruct to, to destruction. But dear ones, if we would wish for our rulers that they would be taught this lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to be taught, how much more and do we not see as well, in our case, must we not take even greater care that we learn the same truth, that it is God that rules, that it is God that has given us everything we have, that we not take glory to ourselves, that we not rob him of his glory. Pride in all of us, dear ones, is, as we've already noted, an abomination to God. It's not, uh, it's kind of the, I suppose, unspoken sin. What we focus on are the things that we can see. You know, we, we, we tend to focus upon, you know, the way we speak, you know, uh, vulgarity, blasphemy. We tend to, to focus upon uh, murder and, and uh, various forms of moral, uh, immoral perversity. Uh, but we don't focus upon 
that which cannot necessarily be seen, uh, but it can be heard at times in the words that are spoken. But that's where the focus primarily ought to be in all of our hearts, is upon our pride, because it's there in all of us. It's in all of us. But again, if we do not take it seriously, how can we be praying that the leaders of our land be taught the nature of their pride if we're not even taking it seriously ourselves? It's very easy to pray that others would see their pride, but do we see our own pride? Our criticism of others, which we might call constructive criticism, proves to be very unprofitable so often because it does not truly care. It doesn't truly care to help others or to serve others in love, but rather to put others down and to exalt ourselves. That we're not like them. Uh, we're like the Pharisee uh, in the temple. I'm thankful I'm not like that person. And yet the publican is beating his chest and crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How the angelic watchers here we see the angelic watchers leave open a door of hope and mercy to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 26 in speaking about the stump that would be left uh, indicated that a fence of brass and iron would be placed around it to preserve it and uh, that this meant that uh, according to verse 26 that the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar shall be sure unto him after he again, acknowledges that it's the heavens that do rule. So this judgment would not be per permanent, but rather would be temporary for seven times, as we noted, most likely means seven years. If only unbelievers would understand that God's delay in sending the full uh, fury and force of his judgment is not to show his approval of their rebellion and of their sins, but rather to lead them to repentance. As with Nebuchadnezzar, God forewarned him through Daniel, through this dream, and yet he didn't change. A year later, as we'll look at God willing next Lord's Day, he's still wallowing in pride, and God brings this judgment upon him. In Romans 2.4, Paul says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? The goodness and mercy of God should lead us to repentance, not confirm us, not to approve of our rebellion, confirm us in that rebellion, but to turn us. The fact that he has delayed and he has given us time to repent. And he's blessed us in so many ways. Those delays are not a sign of his approval any more than they were a sign of approval on God's part as it related to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave him time to repent, but he did not. Our third main point, Daniel's plea 
for the king's repentance. In verse 27. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. So the dream has now been in, uh, interpreted, but Daniel is not yet finished. He concludes by giving to King Nebuchadnezzar the only way that tranquility and peace in his reign would be extended. The way of repentance. The way of repentance. Instead of continuing in proud rebellion against God, he must humble himself before God and practice righteousness and obedience to the Lord and must show mercy to the oppressed who were trampled underfoot for his own glory. Dear ones, true repentance begins with faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Faith is the mother grace that gives birth to repentance to love, and to new obedience, according to Hebrews 11.6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. No repentance before faith, no regret, no sorrow before faith and trust in Jesus Christ is an acceptable work. Because without faith, we can't present anything acceptable to God, not even our so-called repentance. Our repentance and all our works are in fact dead before God apart from faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But where there is saving faith, remember the little acronym CAT, K-A-T, where there is saving faith, knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of Jesus Christ, the A, assent or agreement, that that is true concerning the gospel of Christ, that I am a sinner, I need a savior. Jesus Christ is the only savior and Lord that God has provided to rescue and save me and trust the T to receive him. Not simply to acknowledge him, but to receive him as your own personal savior. That's saving faith. Until then, apart from that, there will always, there will never be true repentance. But where that is present, there will always be, after that, saving faith. There will always be gospel repentance. And not only one time at the time of our conversion, but throughout our life. The Christian life is one of repentance until we are glorified. Repentance, dear ones, is a sorrowful change of mind about our own sin that leads to a change in behavior. Without a change of behavior, there is no evidence that true repentance has occurred, that the heart has been changed. And I would also submit to you, dear ones, there is no true joy in God's forgiveness and pardon apart from sorrow 
over our sin and having offended a holy and most merciful God. We cannot rejoice in God's forgiveness if we do not realize how serious our sins are. And it's because we, we realize, we come to understand how we have offended God that his forgiveness becomes to us so beautiful. It is cherished by us and loved by us. Historically, in the scripture, God even grants to the wicked, as with Nebuchadnezzar, a merciful reprieve from temporal judgment at times. Think of the Ninevites. God had said he was going to bring judgment upon them in 40 days, and yet they repented, and that judgment was stayed. In Jonah 3.10, in Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 8, we read, At what instant, God is speaking here, At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. I will show them mercy. Is God's mercy leading us to repentance in our lives? Or is it hardening us in our sin and rebellion against him? There was, if God is merciful to the, the wicked, how much more will he delight to show his mercy to those and deliver from Judgment, not just temporal judgment, but to deliver from eternal judgment those who trust in Jesus and repent of all their evil ways. I'm reminded of King Manasseh in Second Chronicles chapter 33, who was the most vile king that ever reigned in Judah. He followed after the ways of the kings of Israel, he even brought uh, into uh, uh, Judah the abominations of the nations all around and setting up their gods and, and, and in all of the perversity and immorality that prevailed, offering children uh, to uh, Molech and to the, the gods of these heathen nations. He did everything that he could, it would appear, to, uh, to show his rebellion and his, his uh, repulsion of the living God. And yet he was the son of one of the most righteous kings of Judah, Hezekiah. And yet he turned against all that he had been taught by his faithful father. And yet... God threatened judgment. That judgment fell upon Manasseh. He was taken into Assyrian captivity. And while uh, in Assyrian captivity, God turned his heart to repentance. He turned from his wicked ways. He repented and God restored him. 
back to his throne in Jerusalem. And he became a reforming king and tearing down all of the idolatry, enacting reformation within the land of Judah because God is merciful. Because he repented. And God delights to show mercy to those who repent. And I leave you with this last verse from Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That is the God whom we serve, a God of mercy, a God who delights in our repentance and delights to show us his mercy. Dear ones, let us not delay. Let us not think that if God convicts us of sin, that we can continue therein. He is a God who is righteous and holy and just, and his delays are not confirmation of our sin, but it's a call, his conviction, his delays are a call to repentance, that we might enjoy his mercy, that we might enjoy his forgiveness. May it be so, our God, our God in all of our lives. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Lord, we thank thee for thy truth. That, uh, Lord, it is not always easy. It is not always a, a happy message that we must convey, but Lord, if it is received and if we administer it in love and it is received with thankful hearts and with a new heart, Lord, how we rejoice that thou dost show mercy. Lord, even to those uh, like Manasseh, we pray our God for this has been true in all of our lives. Uh, we see thy mercy, uh, each one of us. We see our Lord, how after sincere repentance, how there is such blessing, how there is such joy from sincere repentance. We ask our God, work that repentance within us daily, May we, our God, uh, be those who do not justify our sins or condemn others in approving of our own sins, but be those who are quick to turn from them and to fall upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus and to not only repent before thee, but before others that we have indeed sinned against. We ask, Lord, hear our prayers.
for Jesus' sake. Amen.